It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Britain gets its third prime minister this year with Rishi Sunak set to enter number 10, who warns of a profound economic challenge. I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together. We'll be live in London for the very latest on the dramatic political events there. Here, there's a growing refugee accommodation crisis as the government considers emergency measures. Charities want more done to help those fleeing the war. What is the plan to release the 62,000 vacant properties around the country? There's no excuse anymore. We'll debate all the issues of the day. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Rishi Sunak will be Britain's next Prime Minister, the third person to hold the office this year. The 42-year-old former Chancellor was the only name left in the running for the Tory leadership after Boris Johnson and Penny Mordaunt pulled out. The handover of power is expected to take place tomorrow, bringing an end to Liz Truss's 50 days in office. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity, and I will make it my utmost priority to bring our party and our country together. Well, let's go live to London first and join our correspondent, Ollie Barrett, who's there. And Ollie, it was touted as a potential three-horse race. There was Boris Johnson, Penny Mordaunt, of course, in the mix. But in the end, it was fairly straightforward. It was clear when we knew that Boris Johnson was pulling out, of course, all the attention turned to Penny Mordaunt and through the hours of this morning, we were told by her campaign that she was going to get to that level of 100 nominations to get into the race and that when she did so, she was going to make sure that it all went down to the membership, that the party members would get to vote. But it became clear that she was really struggling to get beyond around 90 nominations and that's why she dropped out in the end. She just simply couldn't get there and that therefore meant that Rishi Sunak became the next leader of the Conservative Party. He spoke to Conservative MPs before speaking to the cameras and to those Conservative MPs he said that they must unite or die. When he did speak to the cameras he talked about uh, needing integrity and humility which many people have seen as a bit of a dig at his predecessor Boris Johnson perhaps. Boris Johnson perhaps we uh, by the way we have not heard from yet. He is not one of those Conservative MPs who have so far tweeted their congratulations to the incoming Prime Minister and said that he will have his full support. So we will keep an eye on that over the coming days. Rishi Sunak's priorities, though, uh, clearly the economy is absolutely at the top of that list. He has some very 
difficult decisions to make. So what now? Another big day tomorrow, Ali. Uh, he has to form a government. Uh, first off, of course, he has to officially be sworn into his new role. That's right. Liz Truss will hold a final cabinet meeting at around nine o'clock tomorrow morning here in London. She will then go to the palace to see King Charles at around 10 a.m. Uh, that's when she will formally resign as prime minister and then Rishi Sunak will follow her in and he will meet with King Charles. He will be asked to form a government and at that point he becomes the next UK prime minister. He will then return to Downing Street. Of course, he's worked out of Downing Street before, but in number 11 rather than uh, in number 10 as Prime Minister. We will have some words from Rishi Sunak on the steps outside Downing Street before he gets into the building and gets on with the job. Uh, and going back to that idea of unite or die, that is going to be one of the key elements for Rishi Sunak. Can he, as he appoints his cabinet, bring together some of those warring factions in the Conservative Party, a party which has at times in recent months just seemed completely dysfunctional and unmanageable. So if he is going to deliver stability for the economy and for the country, first of all, he's going to have to deliver it in his own Conservative Party as well. OK, Ollie, thank you for that. And more on this big story a bit later on in the programme. But here, government ministers have been meeting to discuss the growing refugee accommodation crisis. At the weekend, some Ukrainian arrivals were told there was no state-provided accommodation for them. And earlier, the Taoiseach had this to say about the crisis. We have never witnessed since World War II such a humanitarian um, uh, crisis as we are now across Europe. Um, with so many millions of people displaced. So yes, we, we, we can do things better in terms of, 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 of uh, some of our systems in respect of uh, you know, payments and so on like that. And all of that will come on the agenda, but also securing additional accommodation as well. Well, I'm joined now by Fianna Fáil TD, Jim O'Callaghan, Labour Senator, Annie Howey, Irish Examiner, Political Editor, Daniel McConnell, Anatoly Primakov from Ukrainian Action Ireland, and Emma-Lane Spallen, National Coordinator of Ukraine Civil Society. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Danny, to come to you first, we had this Cabinet subcommittee meeting um, that wrapped up at, I think, uh, tea time today, but they had a, a lot on the agenda because under discussion were emergency plans to ease this accommodation crisis. Mm. So what was discussed and, and what's come from that meeting? OK, so, uh, I mean, the backdrop to this is not only, the, I suppose, the acute pressure that was on the system this weekend, where essentially 43 individuals were turned away because there wasn't anywhere for them to go, but more to do with the transition from this so-called emergency phase, because essentially that the provisions that are in place by way of, you know, hotel accommodation, food and board and all the rest of it was only really supposed to be there for a short period of time. We're now obviously in a position where the Ukrainian people who have arrived in Ireland are going to be here, if not on a permanent basis, then on a semi-permanent basis. So what we're seeing is, I suppose, the government now moving into that phase. And what we're seeing is that the €400 Euro payment that has been on offered to families to take in Ukrainian refugees is likely to be doubled. And that will be signed off by the, cabinet, the full cabinet next week. Ultimately, what we're also likely to see is a kind of a, a shifting or an amending of the terms and conditions of the, the package offered to those Ukrainian refugees in, in hotels. Essentially, there's a recognition that many of them are working, so there will be, they will be asked at some point for a contribution towards the, the, their food costs. What you're also likely to see is a second City West-type facility come on stream at some point in the, in the near distant future, because clearly there isn't enough capacity in City West on its own. But it gets a bit more tricky because we are now looking at, you know, should another wave of people come 
and you're at the point where there is no capacity in City West, you know, are people, are, are they better off being sent away like they were this weekend mm. or should they be, you know, the idea of tented accommodation is back on the agenda. Um, the idea of prefabricated units in, in military barracks has also been discussed. So these Was are that discussed tonight, the idea around it, uh, tented my, accommodation? My understanding it was certainly on the agenda heading into that meeting. Yeah, um, just when you hear this, Anatoly, just to get like your reaction from a Ukrainian perspective, um, I, I presume you've been talking to people who are arriving into the country at the moment or thinking about uh, coming here. What's their reaction? Have you been filling them in on the situation? Well, I just would like to begin by saying that today marks eight months since the full-scale invasion of Russia. And while you know we think that it's been hard for us here dealing with this crisis, it's certainly been a lot harder for the people in Ukraine that are arriving here today. Yes, we have been speaking to some of them, and the people are, that are arriving, they're disoriented, they're not sure where to go. There's kind of a lack of information about what can and cannot be offered. It's, you know, it's the same would be if you or I were to land in a different city and look for somewhere to go and seek help. You know, people just are at a loss, right? But, um, you know, whether in regarding people that are thinking to come to Ireland, I don't think that in the near future, anybody who was thinking of coming to Ireland might change their mind because you know they might have already purchased tickets, uh, they might have already made up their mind whether they want to go uh, to Ireland in particular. So I don't think there sh will be a decrease in numbers per se uh, on the back of these news, uh, particularly because it's hard for these kind of news to filter all the way back to people that would be in other countries that are coming to Ireland. And lastly, the increased missile and drone attacks on the civilians in Ukraine would be driving more people and obviously the damaged infrastructure and the advent of winter would be also contributing yeah. to that. Because at the moment we're seeing some 1,500 arrivals per week, isn't that right, Emma, um, in terms of people coming and fleeing this situation? As you say, the eight-month anniversary today mm -hmm. and things have really escalated in recent weeks as well. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of this situation that is greeting people when they arrive here? Um, the lack of beds, the fact that we're, we're hearing there will be, you know, a lack of 15,000 beds towards December, but right now we have dozens of people at the airport with no idea where to go or where they will be staying. I think it's really sad. And I, because actually I think our response to date has actually been phenomenal. Um, I think we have to remind ourselves of the numbers that we have accommodated. And if you had said a year ago that we would do this, we would have said we can't. Right, we said there's absolutely no way. We couldn't do it for Afghan, we'd struggled with 500. Mm. And here we have done more than 50,000. So I think on the one side we have to go, we have really done a huge amount, but it's really sad that we would fail 43 people over a weekend, that we didn't have any support at the airport, that we couldn't give them camp beds, we couldn't give them sleeping bags, we couldn't even give them cups of tea. And that was the Capuchin Day Centre that went out, a volunteer on her day off and did that. And that's upsetting and I presume it's signalling something and that I don't think we should be playing with people's lives and the people who are arriving now are some of the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, you know there are men who have gone through the occupied territories, they've made their whole way through Russia mm -hmm. and to land here and not have security I think that's a failure we don't want. And yet, um, Jim, we were projecting numbers of up to 200,000 people arriving here. Like, they were the numbers that were being put out there, you know, in, in April, May of this year. And it seems, despite that, there's no contingency plans in place for those numbers because we're talking about 58,000 people here now. And we can't handle that. Well, 55,000 Ukrainians have come. And I just want to agree with Emma. I think the response of the Irish people through their government has been exceptionally generous. 
Not only are the 55,000 people here, there's 42,000 of that 55,000 in state-provided accommodation. We have 11,500 okay. school children. But we have a crisis on our hands now. Yeah, but we need to recognise what the state has done today. So as we're saying, we have yeah. 11,500 school children in schools here. And we have 10,000 of the Ukrainians who are working. So the state has done a lot. Obviously, there are huge pressures in terms of providing accommodation because at present, the state is providing 58,000 accommodation units okay. to individuals but, who are refugees. But the numbers Last coming in at the moment with the escalation of, of violence that we're seeing with 1,500 people coming in per week from yes. Ukraine and then some 400 others coming from other countries um, uh, claiming international protection. And we've no plan in place. But sorry, we do have a plan in place because this time last year we only had 7,250 refugees in state accommodation. Today we have 58,000. So the government over so the past... what's the emergency meeting about today then? Over the past eight months, the government has put in place over 50,000 units to accommodate refugees. So that's right. quite significant in terms of what we've done. But obviously the numbers are very significant. That we've uh, had to close the City West facility, the main But that's because facility. there are so many numbers there. That's because there's such okay. large numbers. Are coming. Can we just compare ourselves to other countries? If you look at similar sized countries in Europe, such as, say, Denmark, or Norway. Denmark has taken in 36,000 Ukrainian refugees. Norway has taken in 30,000. Ireland's taken in 55,000. So we've done exceptionally well. And like every other European country that's taking in large numbers of refugees, we have issues in respect of accommodation. OK, we've done exceptionally well. Annie Howey? No, I mean, the, the Czech Republic have taken in 427,000. Their population is about 10 million, so just over twice our size. So there are countries taking in huge numbers of people, you know, Poland stuff of taking massive numbers of refugees. In. And, and there's no question about it. We, there, a lot has been done. But, you know, for example, we've had 10,000, and this is a response to a PQ that Deputy Batchik uh, put in, that 10,000 people offered their homes either to an NGO or through local authorities. And out of that, 1,680 of them were used. Like, that's official government figures. So when we have people who are lining up trying to help as best they can, I know not everywhere is going to be suitable. People have withdrawn from the thing, but it seems... That's a hard figure to comprehend that 10,000 people have put, offered, uh, offered to help, but out of that, only 1,680 have been processed or deemed to be suitable. We've got 43 people this weekend yeah. who are looking for somewhere, who needed somewhere, and only for the goodness of that lady's heart to have gone out there, they would have just been flailing out in the, in the airport. And that is not, that's not good enough. And I really hoped actually that this, that week, the weekend and what happened has been a blip because, to be fair, we have achieved a huge mm. amount and I'm really willing um, us to, to the government to get just, through this. Just on that, and what we're hearing mm -hmm. tonight um, from Danny is that this €400 Euro that's been given to households who are, you know, pledging accommodation, that'll be doubled to €800. Yeah. Well, why don't we explore the pledges that have already been made and not followed up on? Well, if you look at the payments that have been paid out, as of early September, there was 2,800 households who had accommodated Ukrainians and were in receipt of the payment. That's not enough. We need much more. And I know there's anecdotal yeah, but there are, evidence. But, but what we're hearing is there are we're hearing much that. more, and yet it's not being but it resourced. But it doesn't seem to be coming through. And in fairness to the but government... Why not? I don't know. Maybe it's because it hasn't been run centrally or maybe it's because it hasn't been run by local authorities, one or the other. But I think we need to, and I'm pleased to hear that this evening, as Danny said, that local authorities are going to play a greater role because the government is prepared to put money on this. Can, as Michael McGrath said today, should we're spending... Should that not have been done from the start? But should we had a payment of €400 euro 
And unfortunately, there was only an uptake of 2,800 households by the beginning of September. We need to increase that. And obviously, the you government's know, I, emphasis I from the meeting today you're is to your try to at, increase you're, that. You're shaking your head at this. Yeah, I mean, because uh, we do have just under 8,000 people who are now living in, in pledged accommodation, right? And so the increase in their recognition payment is to be welcomed because it acknowledges what they're doing and it may encourage more. But there wasn't the uptake, uh, and that is a fault of processes. It's poor processes, poor management and poor systems. And the local authorities have been involved for quite a while, and they are not following up, and maybe because they haven't been asked the right way, maybe because they feel they've not been resourced the right way, and maybe they feel it's not their job. Now, we need to fix that, because I actually do think local authorities and local communities are absolutely key. But there isn't a medium-term plan for follow-on accommodation. You know, 500 modular houses, that's 2,000 people, right? That's not an answer. Local authorities being asked to come up with 100 uh, properties, that's not an answer. It, they're, they're all part of the solution, but what we need is that jigsaw to actually put together. To, so when we come to April next year, and the tourism season comes on, how are we accommodating the numbers that we have in a way that's thought through and planned? Mm -hmm. And I think this is so important for Ukrainians and for the Irish community. I, I guess the decisions that are going to be made now at this cabinet subcommittee level, Danny, are, are what we're going to see in six months' time, really. Mm -hmm. That's what they're, they're looking <coughs> at here. I'm interested in the push that they're saying that there's this bottleneck when it comes to a lot of people staying in hotel accommodation. And then the Taoiseach sort of saying at the weekend, you know, the problem is there's a caution about leaving that hotel accommodation. Yeah. So now I suppose there's, there isn't the same incentive talk about uh, not having food provided to people who are staying in hotels. Yeah. Is, is, is the, that what way now the government are, are, are tackling this perceived problem? There's a sense that the, <coughs> the, the offer of support is unequal depending on where you are. So if you're in a hotel and you're essentially your board has been provided for, so all your food and your, your, your accommodation is essentially being covered by the state. If you've been moved out into the community, that's not the case. You know what I mean? You're not getting the same level of support. So, and there is, a, there is a sense, and certainly I was being briefed on this last night, that there is a sense that there are a certain number of people who are in the hotels who have essentially made, made their, their network there or their base there. They have friends now. They have their kids are in local schools. They may be working in the local community. They are reluctant. Um, to, to move and elsewhere. are the accommodation options available to them outside Not always, of, of the it, hotel? Because it, it's very ad hoc. Because, like, look at yeah. the Killarney situation, where you know what I mean. There were being talked about being bussed up to to Mayo. It was that only was about seven months in, wasn't it? As there well, there was. And, and but you also then had this issue that it was up to local politicians scrambling to find an adequate network of properties. Now they ultimately did mm -hmm. that, and that and that move to Mayo was cancelled. But there are there are genuine fears that you know. Listen, we've already been traumatised once in Ukraine. We're coming over here. We've made a kind of a relatively stable base here, albeit in a hotel, um, and they're, they're reluctant as to where that might their next step might be. Now, no one is suggesting that a, you know living in a hotel is a permanent solution. You know, that it really isn't. But yeah. we, but but clearly, the dots are not being joined up, uh, and and certainly there's a there's an awful lot of what what I was getting a lot of last night, and it's classic Irish government stuff is one department blaming another department for the chaos, and I kind of get the sense that Michal Martin was heading into that meeting tonight to try and put an end to that because people's tempers are beginning to fray in relation to that. Yeah, um, in, in reference to this, and it points again at the political tensions, I think, that we're seeing, Anatoly, do you believe that there needs to be a sort of Neffet-type type task force here and a figurehead or somebody who will take up this job and be the go-to person, the spokesperson, take the lead on 100%, 100%, this? 100%, 100%, because we've been, we've been asking this of the government for quite some time now. We do feel that needs to be the case because... 
you know, want, you know, to quote, I don't know how many people that have spoken here tonight, this is a crisis of epic proportions, you know, we're li living through, you know, generational events here. We need somebody to, you know, same as COVID, you know, we need somebody to take charge, to be the point of contact so that one department isn't blaming each other because probably it's not mm. anybody's particular fault. It's the fact that they're not probably working together mm. as well as they could be, you know, hypothetically. So there definitely needs to be a person and it would be a person that we don't necessarily need, you know, daily updates like we had at, you know, during COVID. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we do need a person that when the Irish public and the Ukrainian uh, refugees will benefit from somebody giving regular updates on what the situation is and what the plan is, more importantly. Yeah, and we're also hearing about um, other changes being discussed. Um, the idea, Annie, that uh, benefits would be cut back for people who are arriving here, like the automatic medical card that was given to members of the Ukrainian community. Um, do you think that that's a, a reasonable idea in the circumstances, or what's your view on it? I don't think a reasonable response to people fleeing from a land war at the edge of Europe is to cut medical support to them. I don't think that is a, I, I personally don't think that's a reasonable thing. I think we should be giving them every last bit of help that they need. And a medical card is a, a, a small, meaningful mm. thing to do. I do think it's important to say, you know, earlier this year, Minister O'Brien wrote to, you know, the political parties, the groupings, political people asking for us for suggestions on what can be done and lists of vacant properties in all our localities. And we all, you know, participated, you know, we trotted around and looked at this, that and the other. We've never heard anything back about that. And I think a lot of people, a lot of political groupings and public yeah. representatives did something. We never heard anything back from that, whether anything came from it, whether this was a good idea, whether mm. it was a bad idea, you know, and it'd be great to actually hear from the minister whether any of those suggestions were taken up because well, I do think people tried. It has come up time and time again, I suppose, the lack of an innovative approach when it comes to this, Jim, that yes, we are in extraordinary circumstances, but at the same time, that's really when you have to think about what you can do and these number of vacant properties, we heard it there at a clip at the top of the show as well, um, saying really it's not good enough that they are not in use. They have been highlighted. There are buildings, there are institutions yeah. that could be reopened. Yeah, listen, Why is all that taking so long? Listen, we so have long? issues in this country with vacant properties and that needs to be examined and resolved, not just for Ukrainian mm. people, but just in general. It's inappropriate that we have properties that are vacant. Mm. But just going to say in terms of the medical card, like the government has given out 43,000 medical cards and, you know, I recommend that and I want it to stay there. And I don't think anyone should mm. seek to take it away. But it is an illustration of the generosity and the positive response of the government. We have had a crisis in the so accommodation. Do you think they should be, they should no, be curtailed? No, I, I don't think they should be curtailed. And I think we need to give support to people. But the good news as well is that there are 10,000 of the Ukrainians have arrived who are working. Mm. So like, the important thing is that they get integrated into our community, that they work, that they'll be able to afford for their own, their own accommodation then. But that's the way to resolve okay. this. Can I go back to the vacant buildings? Yeah. What is the issue there? Because we're hearing some, you know, tens of thousands of vacant properties that could be put in use. The modular homes, I don't think, are going to come on stream now till, well, God knows when, but I, we're I don't know the, the reason for anyway. the delay, but I do know the government, since it's an emergency response, like we're in a situation now where one in four hotel rooms in the country is being used for the benefit of mm -hmm. refugees. So like we haven't gone down the route of examining more appropriately the vacant properties that are available. Would you agree that we I think you we need, need to. to. I'm no doubt yeah. Dara O'Brien is doing that. But like, can I just emphasize something here? There's no easy solution to this. It's a crisis and it's not a unique crisis yeah. in Ireland. Every other European country is facing the same issue that we're facing here. And some of them are facing them in a much worse condition than we are. Okay. Claire, just very quickly, we hear about these vacant units. You walk through Dublin city centre, there are flats with, that have been boarded 
it up, not for a week or two weeks, but, but for years. Mm -hmm. In a stone's throw from O'Connell Street, a stone's throw from Grafton Street, mm -hmm. that's unforgivable. Mm -hmm. Not only where we find ourselves in terms of the Ukraine crisis, mm -hmm. but in terms of housing crisis. Jim, you're a former Dublin City Council member. Like, I mean, why, why does this allow... I don't know. I don't know. It's been a, an issue there even before the housing crisis that we allow vacant properties mm -hmm. to remain there and not to be used and not to force the owners of the property to do something with the property mm -hmm. so they can be put back into use. Listen, that is a longer term issue as well and has to be dealt with. But in terms of Ukrainians who are in the country and providing... This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Longer-term issue. I mean, these are buildings that if I you... I know. Listen, it's, if you we're took not going to be able to... We're, if you took the hoarding off them and did a bit of work on them, it needn't take that long. Yeah. I mean, we've had this... You know, we've had war breaking out eight months, as you say, and a lot could have been done Listen, in that eight months. We need to ensure that there are no vacant properties around, right. but it is going to take time to do that, and I think we probably need more legislative pressure put on the owners to ensure that they're forced to put their properties but back into use. But these are Dublin City Council yeah. units. Yeah. Like, a lot of these oh, are Dublin City yeah. Council units. Like. I know that you're talking about the voids and Dublin yeah, City Council. Yeah. Some of them, yeah, do remain uh, unused and vacant for periods of time. And what happens is when the Dublin City Council tenant moves on or dies, the council won't allow somebody into it until such time as they've refurbished the place. And that can take up to a year, unfortunately. Mm. Emma, are you hoping something positive will come out of all of this? And that, uh, There always has to be out of a crisis something positive, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's for releasing housing for our, own, for our own people or for the Ukraine. And I really am hoping that the Taoiseach's meeting today is a reset, right? And because we really need new energy. And it's not even, we kind of know what the solutions, we've talked about the solutions. What we need is the urgency. We need a plan and we do need a medium plan. Actually, 90% you know, hotel accommodation is not a plan, right? That's a fallback scenario. We need to be doing parallel strategy which is addressing vacancy, it's encouraging rent room, all those things we've discussed, but that needs to be driven. And it's unfair to leave that burden on the Department of Children. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Anatoly and Emma for coming in tonight. The rest of my panel is staying on with me next. Another new name at number 10. But what does it mean for us? Stay with us.
Welcome back. The government here is hoping for a good working relationship with the new British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Here's how the Taoiseach reacted earlier to the new appointment at number 10 in London. Sometimes we can over, overemphasize the personality dimension to this. There are very real politic issues. What I detected from uh, Liz Truss in particular was a desire to get this resolved. And it was made very clear to me that the British government did want to get this resolved through negotiation as the preferred way of doing it. I would like to see that continue uh, under a new British Prime Minister. That sort of idea that we would sort this out through a negotiated um, settlement. That's Michal Martin talking about the prospects uh, for the protocol. Well, my panel is still here with me. Fianna Fáil TD, Jim O'Callaghan, Labour Senator Annie Howey and Irish Examiner political correspondent Daniel McConnell. And I'm also joined by journalist Vincent McAvinney from the UK tonight. Vincent, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, Rishi the man, what do we know about him? We have to say it was a pretty uh, uninspiring opening speech. But here we have the youngest British Prime Minister, the first leader of Asian descent for the country too. A big moment, arguably. A very big moment in a year which has seen a lot of dramatic uh, moments. Last month, uh, he lost the leadership and this month he is preparing tonight to head into number 10 Downing Street. As you said, it was a very short and, and quite uh, sort of stilted address that he gave today. I think he'll be saving himself for the big words tomorrow when he um, comes back from Buckingham Palace and is outside that black door. But it is a meteoric rise. He's only 42 years old. He's even younger than when Tony Blair got into office. He only became an MP in 2015, only the most junior ranking of ministers uh, in about 2018. Uh, and then he was shadow uh, secretary at the uh, Treasury under Sajid Javid before then rapidly rising to chancellor. So he has had a real meteoric rise for someone that's only been in Parliament for around seven years now. We also know he's super rich. Uh, the criticism has been there all along. But of course, now he's a British Prime Minister. So he is acting for everyone. He has his vast wealth of £750 million, pounds, um, a doubling, actually, of what the king who will uh, swear him in tomorrow has. So how will that wash with the public? Yeah, he is the UK's 222nd uh, richest person with his wife. They have, as you mentioned, their fortune estimated to be about 750 million pounds. And she is also part of an Indian uh, multi-billionaire family. Uh, so they are incredibly wealthy. Now, he likes to emphasize his background was the fact that his parents uh, came from, they obviously have Indian heritage, but they came from East Africa. His mum, uh, a pharmacist, his dad, a doctor, uh, and that they worked. They became very comfortable, though, because they did have a whole series of pharmacies down in the south of England. He went to a very prestigious public school. Uh, and there's even a clip of him doing the rounds on an old BBC documentary where he said he doesn't know anyone working class. So he is someone that's going to struggle in the way that Boris Johnson, of course, came from a wealthy, privileged background. But he had a knack for making people across the country uh, think that he was someone like them, an ordinary guy, a bit of a bloke that you could go for a pint with. I think Rishi Sunak might struggle with that approach at the moment. Uh, and there have been, you know, despite it being a landmark moment in terms of diversity at the top of British government, there have been in recent days an uptick of comments on news websites and also on call-in stations like LBC of people just making outwardly racist remarks about the fact that we're ending up with a prime minister who comes from that British Indian background. 
Yeah, um, let's get the, the rest of the panel in on this one. Um, Annie, it's interesting because in opposition, your colleagues in the British Labour Party are saying he has no mandate, there is a need for a general election now. Uh, that's something that they're going to push for at every opportunity. Yeah, well, I mean, I think looking at the state of play in the, the past while in, in the UK, it seems actually kind of gobsmacking that there isn't going to be a general election, you know, that they are going to just continue to struggle on in this kind of state of chaos. Obviously, the Labour Party are, are really excited for a general election because I think it would be a very significant one for them. They've an enormous uh, point lead at this stage and, and who knows what could happen over the next two years. So they'll obviously want to maintain that lead and strike while the iron is hot. But it does seem almost obscene that there has been this level of chaos of moving around and up and down and all around and that there isn't going to be a general election. You know, I don't know how people aren't taking to the streets and losing their minds, actually, because it almost feels a little bit like they're being made a mockery of. They're just swapping the prime minister around amongst this very tiny group of people. Like, that's extremely undemocratic. Yeah, um, and yet it is the situation. And he'll be hoping, Danny, that he can unite uh, the Conservatives, which are really in disarray, but more so... Um, the country, which is, you know, we've seen that the pound tanking and all the economic problems um, since Liz Truss's 50 days uh, in office. So an awful lot to do there to, you know, bring back a bit of stability to the country. He has a huge job of work and, you know, while we may be enthralled by the soap opera, but there have been very real consequences in terms of mortgage, in mortgage increases or the cost of mortgages increases in the UK. Um, you know, they're now very firmly locked into a kind of a low growth, high tax economy, you know, and, you know, they're now looking at another round of austerity. Um, and it is, without any question, a basket case. And you compare what we did in the, la in, in the budget here, we were able to put in a budget package of 10 or 10 or 11 billion, but we didn't have to borrow a cent for it. They were looking to kind of pump 40 billion odd, but had to borrow a huge chunk of it. Like, so, like the credibility aspect is massive from, a, from Rishi Sunak. You know, he has to restore the credibility of the government, the economic credibility, but also the political credibility. He has to paint himself as a grown-up. What will be very interesting from an Irish perspective, what will the language be around the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill? What will the language be around building bridges and trying to get the Northern institutions back up and running? Yeah, like that's a big challenge. There's already a deadline looming of Friday, isn't there, to get those institutions back up and running? That's not going to happen, is it, Jim? I don't think so. But listen, I would have thought the Irish government has relatively low expectation at this stage. What we want to see is a functioning government in Britain. We haven't had that for five, six months. He's got a difficult task, as Danny says, mm. because the previous government of Liz Truss did huge damage to the British economy. And like this should be of concern to us because the damaged British economy is very bad for Ireland as well. But as a result of the policies she's introduced, the markets now are looking at the British government and the British yeah. exchequer with a completely different light. So he's got to be extremely careful about economic decisions he makes or else some of these people put another run on the pound. And now Michal Martin said both the UK and the EU wanted a negotiated solution, but arriving at agreement like on an outcome there when it comes to the protocol will be difficult. Just how difficult do you think this is going to be? Well, I think, in fact, the chaos that we've seen in Britain over the past four weeks is going to make it better for Ireland in terms of the negotiation on the protocol. I don't think it's feasible for Rishi Sunak and the new British government to do anything that could give rise to a trade war with the EU. Mm. So they're going to have to do a deal on the protocol. This trust was going there anyway, as you saw the Taoiseach saying earlier on. So the last thing Sunak needs is to have a trade war with the EU. So I don't see him going down the route of trying to facilitate the DUP, as I think they will be facilitated, or abiding by the instructions given by the ERG. And like really, 
British Prime Minister should wake up to the fact that taking instructions from the ERG is a recipe for disaster. Okay. Vincent, would you agree with that now, that uh, like with this shambles that, uh, on, on home turf, really, they're going to want to play it safe when it comes to negotiating with the EU? I think they will, but what will be different with Rishi Sunak is compared to our previous Prime Minister since Brexit, he is a Brexit true believer. He came out very surprisingly, very early, for Brexit. He believed in it. He thought it was the best route to go for. He believes in deregulation. Whereas you've seen, you know, Theresa May, a Remainer, having to try and do the job. Boris Johnson only picking Brexit simply because he thought it would better off the lot of Boris Johnson. He didn't really, we know he wrote a pro and an against uh, and made his mind up at the last minute just to get into office. Uh, the same with Liz Truss. She was a Remainer who then turned to Brexiteer. So I think there will be maybe a bit more passion in it from Rishi Sunak uh, when it comes to trying to get this. But I think he knows now that his hands have been tied. The plans that he had when he ran for leader in the summer have been ruined by Liz Truss. Government borrowing will be much more expensive now. I think he will want to try and reduce the drama, reduce all, all the tension in Westminster, both because he's a much sort of, you know, less of a big figure, less of a personality. But I think he wants to, as we've seen from the likes of Steve Baker recently, row back a bit of that British heated rhetoric that we've seen over recent years when it comes to the European Union and Northern Ireland. But he doesn't seem that interested in Northern Ireland. We know that in the campaign in the summer, it was effectively his first visit to Northern Ireland. There was rumours years ago uh, that when he was in the Treasury, he would simply look at the amount of money spent on Northern Ireland uh, and wondered why the United Kingdom wanted to keep hold of it. So it'll be interesting to see just how well it's, he decides it, to play this. It, it comes down uh, to bottom lines, I see, with this guy. Let's have a look at some of the front pages that have come in, actually, in British uh, papers today. I think first off is uh, the Financial Times there. Sunak vows to get a grip on the economy. Uh, a picture of him there waving with all his supporters around him. And um, next we have the Telegraph. Sunak tells Tories we must unite or die. That word from uh, inside his, his briefing with his party colleagues. Again, similar picture, similar. This waving, smiling uh, Sunak there. Although the guy in front doesn't look too, too pleased now, as we said. Uh, and to the Guardian, front page of the Guardian. There. Oh, we're back to the Telegraph. Uh, we have the Guardian, we might bring it to you later on. Um, but just to get a view there, it's a tentative time really for Britain. Interesting what Vincent was saying about whether this guy has any interest in the North at all. You know, first mm. time is there was to drum up a bit of support before losing out to Liz Truss. Mm. I think the, the, the mood music in, you know, internally seems to be quite positive towards Ireland in terms of that, he, like I think as Jim said, he cannot afford to go to war with the EU and, and over Ireland and over Northern Ireland. So there is a deal to be done there. So what, what about this legislation and this controversial bill then that was going through? Um, I mean, what's going it's to come... It's going nowhere. It's in the House of Lords. It's not going to go through the House of Lords with any speed. And ultimately, I'd say they'll just drop it. OK, there's no appetite to Well, sorry, it. The, the, it is ostensibly British government policy in terms of was the policy yeah. of Johnson, was the policy of trust that they were going to bring in this Northern Ireland protocol. And also bill. to appease the DUP. So I know, but if they there? bring that in, he's facing, facing into a trade war with the EU. So the obvious method of resolving this problem, and there is a problem there, is through negotiations between the EU and the new British government. OK, but we do have that, that sticking point in the North that the DP, DUP aren't going to go into government um, right now. It's interesting that Sinn Féin and the Alliance Party have said there that, you know, if devolution doesn't come about, we need to have 
joint government support. Um, what do you think of that? Oh yeah, I think that has to be uh, on, the, on the agenda in terms of if there is not going to be any institutions in Northern Ireland, it can't just be left ungovernable. Yeah. And if there a is joint, going, joint authority, if, sorry, British the, and Irish government working obviously together that, that is going to be sort of a red rag to a lot of unionist bulls. But like, I think we need to recognise that if there is a failure on the part of politicians in Northern Ireland to run Northern Ireland, then it will fall to the responsibility of both governments, not just the British government. The days of direct rule by the British government of Northern Ireland are over. All right, okay, well, I suppose for now there is that, uh, that impasse that's there. Um, Annie, as well, I suppose on all of this, people are wondering um, what Boris Johnson's plans are and what he did by coming in at the, the weekend as he did flying in from the Caribbean only to bow out late last night. It's all a bit... Suspicious, wasn't it? He, and, you know, when you think of all the times he didn't come back for various other crises that were happening and then hopped on a plane pretty pronto back over, I saw some fairly scathing tweets being like, now that he's in the country, he might consider doing a, a surgery with a constituent or maybe he might come into the house and attend some debates over the next few days, what with him being back from his holidays. But it was a bit, you wonder what yeah. he's up to. Vincent, if you're still with us, what, what was Boris... Uh, Johnson playing at there because we're hearing tonight from Ian Duncan Smith, the form former Tory leader, that uh, he was really begging to get the votes but just couldn't get enough support. I think he might well be kicking himself now because we knew that in the middle of the parliamentary term, when you're not supposed to travel, he had flown to North America to do a speech, obviously trying to cash in on being an ex prime minister. He can get hundreds of thousands of pounds for just talking for even half an hour. Uh, and then he seemingly flew to the Dominican Republic for a holiday. Now, had he actually been back in the country last week, he could have been building the support for a couple of days. He seems to have hesitated slightly in coming back, even though the writing was on the wall from about Tuesday for Liz Truss. Uh, and he might be kicking himself now that he didn't rush back, because as you say, Ian Duncan Smith saying he came, he had no plan, he was promising everything to everyone, uh, and people, I think, saw through him. He put out that pitch for himself you know, in front of two union jacks on the phone trying to look like he was ready to get back at the job. But I just think people aren't buying it. And I think what also convinced Tory MPs over the weekend that it wasn't time for him is the fact this parliamentary inquiry comes into play in about two weeks' time, assessing Partygate and whether or not he lied to the House of Commons. And he could have had to then resign if they found him guilty of doing that, of misleading the House. So they would have been right back to square one. Oh, could you handle any more drama? Um, my thanks to you for joining us tonight, Vincent, um, and to Jim and to Annie. Daniel is staying on with me. Um, coming up next, the threat to streaming devices as the cost of living crisis worsens. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, Daniel McConnell is still here with me. I'm also joined now by Vish Gain, a journalist with Silicon Republic, because we're going to talk about big changes in the world of streaming services. And to come to you, Vish, on all of this, Netflix um, is making some changes that, to, to change up the model that it's currently offering that actually is doing very well for them at the moment. They're doing well in terms of revenue right now, aren't they? Well, they haven't had a great year overall. I mean, in the first quarter in their earnings, they reported that they lost around 200,000 subscribers. Mm. And then in the second one, they lost a million. So that's when they started panicking and they made 
you know, they doubled down on their efforts to start, you know, cracking down on password sharing and stuff. But last week, they released their third quarter earnings in which they did make a fair, you know, decent revenue. And also they gained 2.4 million new subscribers. So they have made a turnaround. But in general, they do, I mean, they have around 225 or so uh, subscribers at the minute, but they estimate that around 100 million of those are basically shared accounts. And so they're not essentially monetizing to the capacity that they can, essentially. Okay. So, yeah. So tell us about that. In terms of the shared accounts, um, we'll all know when we log in that you can get friends and family similarly to do so, but they're going to kind of clamp down on that and introduce sub-accounts, isn't that right? Yeah, so last week, along with their you know news of the 2.4 million subscribers, they said essentially that they're still going to go ahead with the you know the crackdown on password sharing and so they released two new features last week one of them is sort of to pave the way for the crackdown which is called profile uh, sh profile transfer which basically means that if you have a profile within a paid account with someone else and you're not paying for that account you can transfer your profile to a different paid account that you start paying for essentially and okay. this is kind of preparing people easing people in into that new way of you know suddenly you have to pay for your own account um, if you're not part of the same household and then the second feature is the sub account where you essentially um, you have if, if you can have like accounts added into your Netflix um, package where you pay extra for those extra accounts. All about it, of course, is, is about getting more revenue. Um, Danny, I'm interested looking at this. Like we all have, I mean, people have plenty of subscriptions. I actually don't think they probably realise how many subscription services mm. they have until they jot them all down. Um, with the cost of living crisis, there was talk about people would, you know, start cutting down on all of these things. Do you think we're sort of aware of that in our monthly spend? How much is it going on well, the various streaming services we rely on? If anybody is like me who's got three small kids at home, these subscriptions are needed to get through the day. Um, but uh, like, Essential. Uh, essential. But uh, like, uh, and, you know, we know, you know, particularly when Disney Plus came on, you know, the idea that you could have, you know, three or four, I think it's five or six mm. profiles clearly shared between families all over the place and all the rest of it. So, I mean... You're right, because between someone like me, newspapers, magazines, all my subscriptions, then you've got your Now TVs, you've got your Disney's, your Amazon's, you've got your Apple TV, all that kind of stuff. Of course they add up. And you kind of wonder, well, one of them together might make a perfect package, but you're not going to get all of it in one go. So I can understand the need to clamp down on it. I can understand the need to monetize it. But, you know, I think we are getting to the point, the saturation point where, well, okay, do I need all of them? Do I need all of these subscriptions? And probably not. And that's where I think you're likely to see some intense competition now in the, in the marketplace. And you probably are, are, are more afraid with this, but is it sustainable to have all of these kind of subscriptions, you know, services going at once? Are we, like we are, like it's great from a content point of view. There's so much content out there. Mm. But is it sustainable? I don't think so. Yeah, that was one of the things I thought, look, I mean, how, how's Disney going to fare when it came? Because, I mean, you know, how many people are going to sign up to multiple subscriptions? It seems they are for now, but a, a clampdown could change things. Um, but, you know, when it comes to minimising your spend on subscriptions, are there still ways to do it? Netflix is looking at ways, obviously, of, of stopping that. But are there ways that you can save money but still keep the streaming services you want, Fish? Yeah, absolutely. Like that's something that, you know, I, I'm 25 years old and like I, you know, I have housemates and stuff. So what we do is essentially divide up. If I have a Netflix account, I don't keep a Disney Plus or I don't keep an Apple TV and stuff. And someone else then does not have a Netflix. They instead have sort of a, mm. a Disney Plus maybe. And that, that that's one way in which you can share with your housemates. You're still a part of the same household. So, you know, you're not breaking any rules, but at the same time, you're also, you know, you're not, you're not paying for three different services. Um, and then some other ways is also to kind of 
go all Mary Kondo on the, serv the services that you're paying for, essentially. Like, do I, does this bring joy, except that this time you have to ask yourself, do I actually really need this, you know? Because there are so many, and like, there's so many options as um, uh, You're we talking just, we about premium about. features on some accounts like Spotify or otherwise that maybe you don't need. Yeah, yeah. So the premium uh, account would give you like no ad ads on, on, you know, while listening to, listening to music, whereas you can still listen to all the music you want on a regular account, the free one. But uh, sometimes you can't select the one you want within an album and there are those sorts of problems Speaking as of well. ads, Netflix is introducing an, uh, a model with ads. Now, not to Ireland just yet, but to the UK is one of the countries that it's chosen. Yep. Do you think that's going to be popular or have we reached a point that, you know, for people who are watching streaming services, at least they expect an ad-free experience? I mean, it's difficult to say until it actually comes out, but I think that in the middle of a, you know, an energy and cost of living crisis, people would be wanting to cut, in, you know, want to cut corners. And if the ad-free ad version or ad-supported version is cheaper, then I think they would go ahead and take it. Um, Disney Plus is also coming up with its own ad-free model in ad-supported model in December. Um, and even though we're not used to ads for a while now, um, I mean... I, oh, we I, are here. We are here. <laughs> so maybe but, we're going back to actually a bit, a bit of balance, uh, a bit of balance there that you're going to get. Back to the childhood memories of well, watching TV. Well, I just hope these <laughs> new streaming services work better than certain players in this country who are very ad-heavy and, you know, don't work particularly well. I'm not naming any state broadcaster <laughs> in relation to this, but like, um, like, I think the ad-based model, I think, may be fraught with difficulty because I think you're right like I think a lot of people have gotten so used to the idea like I see it in my household like kids my kids are aghast when we watch terrestrial TV and they see what the hell is an ad like they like they almost give out because they have to wait 30 seconds yeah. to get to it so I just don't know how that luckily our work. audience are still okay with it um, we're going to have to leave it there my thanks to Vish and to Danny who joined us tonight that is it from us our programme is available as a podcast. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, VMTV. Uh, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.